Psychedelic science is exploding and we talk to people at the forefront. So cut through the noise, converse with the vanguard. This is Mind Manifest. Thanks everyone for joining us. This is fantastic. Um, yeah, a big thanks to Emiria and the whole team and Emiria for helping to set this up. Uh, obviously a big thanks to, to Ben for, for joining and being so gracious to be here. And which is possibly one of the most awkward ways to start any podcast is to hear your own bio being read out whilst you're also present in the room. So I'm going to do that, do that now. Um, but yeah, I'd just like to welcome Ben and, and just read out just really some of the highlights of, um, of his sort of journey from very early adopter of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy interests to where we are now. So Dr. Ben Sessa is a consultant child and adolescent psychiatrist who has worked with young people and adults in the field of addictions and trauma-related psychiatry for over 20 years. By my reckoning, I'd say, Ben, you were one of the very first modern British psychiatrists to delve into this field of psychedelic psychiatry and has therefore, through his affiliations with both Bristol University and Imperial College, um, been at the forefront of psychedelic research for a long time. So you're certainly no newcomer, which I think is increasingly important as we get into the business end of things, especially in Australia. Uh, ben has taken part as both a study doctor and as a healthy subject, both receiving and or administering MDMA, psilocybin, LSD, DMT and ketamine in multiple research studies. This is germane to our discussion because uh, I have mentioned in the podcast before I've taken pains to go to Holland to be able to take psychedelics legally. So we will be able to discuss both as mental health professionals and psychonauts really without the fear of falling foul of any of the law, so to speak, um, and which we'll give hope we'll get into that. Um, ben conducted some of the first modern Western clinical trials into the efficacy of using MDMA for the treatment of alcoholism, uh, an enormous public health issue, and we'll link to all these studies in the show notes and elsewhere on YouTube and whatnot. Um, and yeah, that safety and tolerability study has, I think we'll, we'll look back as being one of the seminal studies in this field. Um, ben is also obviously a medical doctor providing private psychiatric consultation, and he's a licensed and approved MDMA ketamine and psilocybin psychotherapist. He's also the author of several books, including Altered States, Minds, Drugs and Culture, uh, Psychedelic drug, drug Treatments, and the Psychedelic Renaissance. I had to flip over the page for your bio, as I was going say. Ben was also heavily featured in Michael Pond's uh, recent Netflix documentary, How to Change Your Mind. So um, Ben is also going to give us a bit of an update on where he is professionally and you know, what has brought him to Australia. But first, just to say a big warm welcome to Perth. Ben, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me here. It's uh, great being in Perth. It's great being in Australia during these uh, historic moments for Australian psychedelic research. Um, and it's a real pleasure to be here tonight and speaking to you. Yeah, great. Um, so yeah, we, I think that's a really great place to sort of kick us off. And what we're now fast approaching as of the 1st of July of this calendar year is the whole interface of psychedelics and medicine, really, you know, and then that will obviously spill out into the culture. But we thought today we would zone in on an area that we both have special interest in is MDMA and sort of how that meets psychiatry. So I think what we're going to do tonight is just, these are just simply opening conversational gambits. We're just going to have little prompts and then we'll take the conversation wherever we want to go. We'll run for probably about an hour and then, you know, we'll, we'll 
convene afterwards and break bread together, which is ultimately the more important thing. But I think one thing that you've been very clear and consistent on talking about is this notion of a potential shift within psychiatry between palliative to curative. And you've used the example and analogy between, say, orthopedics and things like that. So I think it would be great to get an overview of what your thoughts are in terms of the possibility for a paradigm shift within psychiatry. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting thing that I think drives me is this, my, my desire to see the best thing for my patients. And I think any of us that work in mental health, whether as a, as a doctor or a nurse or a pharmacist or a therapist or any kind of those professions, one of the things that drives us is the frustrating lack of efficacy of current treatments. You know, we've had a hundred years of modern psychiatry and our outcomes are outrageously bad. I mean, the worst across the whole field of medicine. Um, I can't imagine orthopedics, paediatrics, immunology, oncology, being satisfied with these kinds of outcomes. You know, PTSD, 60% treatment resistance. Addictions, 90% treatment resistance. You know, relapse at 12 months. This is appalling, you know. We've, we, we've had enough time to do this. Um, and what it comes back to, and actually, let me be really clear, I am not an anti-psychiatrist, yeah? I'm not of the field that there's no place for SSRIs, you know. Many people benefit from traditional psychiatric drugs and traditional psychotherapies, and that's great. But the trouble is there's a significantly large treatment-resistant population, and that's just not good enough. And the one thing that really drives me is just the plight of my patients. And they're sitting there for 10, 20, 30, 40 years taking these, these daily maintenance medications that mask their symptoms but don't get them get better. Or they're attending suboptimal psychotherapies that they cannot engage with and are woefully under-resourced and they're not getting better. And we have become like palliative care doctors mm -hmm. in psychiatry. And the cure word is not even a word we dare usher. You know, it's like... We, we don't even think of ourselves as being able to cure someone. If you've got a patient coming to you in their early 20s with a history of child abuse and maltreatment, presenting with generalized anxiety disorder or PTSD or heroin or alcohol addiction, you're probably going to be looking after that patient in their 70s. Mm -hmm. And that's just outrageous. And yet, as psychiatrists, we've become learned helpless that, oh, that's what we do. We get alongside people. And... So I use this analogy of orthopedic surgery. I want to be an orthopedic surgeon, you know? I want to get the patient in, mend that broken bone, kick them out, and never have them darken my doors again. Yeah. But we don't do that in psychiatry. We sort of just accept that we're going to keep them. And I think we've painted ourselves into this corner. And the top-down biological approach with maintenance therapies just emphasizes that. And it's not, it's not a conspiracy theory. It's not a pharmaceutical industry-driven conspiracy theory. It's, it's apathy on behalf of the profession mm -hmm. and our failure to be innovative and recognize that there's new technologies. So you can see where this is going in terms of psychedelics. Now, I think there's a general understanding of that, even at a societal level. Yeah. You know, uh, and the comparison bears repeating even outside of the sort of medical field, whereas if, if a plumber came to my house in the sixth time, hmm. he was like, oh, still leaky, mate, you know, yeah. should be going, I think I might find a different plumber. Yeah, yeah. Those sorts of, you know, rates of recidivism, sort of rates of recidivism, and then, you know, moving across transdiagnostic things, using different, you know, tweaking things, trying things here and there. I think that's broadly understood at a societal level, but I wonder how much discussion is there within the world of psychiatry about this? Because I'm, I'm familiar with your theme and take on things, but what I don't hear a lot of 
is with sort of somewhat hermetically sealed world of psychiatry, mm. the dissenting voices, like, if you could steel man the argument against that case from a psychiatric perspective mm. that says, you know, okay, well, you know, psychedelics, they're, they're obviously going to be the new kid on the block, but so are SSRIs for a while, you know. So, so how would you sort of present that sort of opposing argument? Well, I mean, putting aside psychedelics for a moment, I don't... It surprised me that you say you haven't heard that within psychiatry. I don't yeah. think there's a psychiatrist out there who yeah. will tell you, oh, yeah, our treatments are great. We have superb success rates. Yeah. I think all of us know they're not. Um, I, but I would push uh, you a wee bit on that. I would push you a wee bit on that to say that the capacity for people to close it on cognitive dissonance at an individual and also at a collective level can be fairly extraordinary. Yeah, so I, I wonder, mean, is there... Well, we've got to have hope. You, know, yeah. you, can't, you yeah. can't be telling the patients that this isn't going to work and you're not going to get better and I'll, yeah. I'll see you in 40 years. Yeah, yeah. You know, but we also <laughs> need to be a bit more honest about just the terrible poor outcomes we've got. Mm -hmm. And I think you know, there's a reason why psychiatrists burn out and mm -hmm. get depression and use drugs and alcohol and divorce <laughs> and, yeah. and, uh, and take their lives more so than yeah. any other medical profession, parts mm -hmm. of the medical profession. It's because I think, in a way, it's the lack of, of hope um, for their patient caseload. It's demoralizing. You know, it's, it's difficult work, you know. You don't go into psychiatry if you're an ego-driven person who wants lots of praise. You know, it's not like being a surgeon or a cardiologist where your patients say, oh, thank you, you've saved my life, you're wonderful, you know, here's a bottle of wine. You know, you, you don't get that in psychiatry. You don't, you don't Relapse. do it. You know, I, um, I can, I've worked with patients who don't say a word for two years, and then after two years, they'll say like, "Oh, you're you're not so so bad as I thought you were," mm -hmm. and you go home that night with, "Yes, I've made a clinical breakthrough." You know, this is not ego-driven, immediate praise um, medicine, which is why I I personally chose it. I think the rest of medicine was just way too easy. Mm -hmm. um, these these are the patients on the bottom rung of the ladder, mm -hmm. socially, physically, biologically, domestically, legally, mm -hmm. um, financially, you know, these are the excluded people of our society. Yeah. Um, it's very hard. Um, and I think there is this, coming back to psychedelics, there's this apathy about our lack of efficacy and safety of our treatments. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is why psychedelics are so exciting. They really are the, late, the newest, most innovative, uh, progressive, technology that we've had in 7,500 years of psychiatry. Um, and they, you know, they are a paradigm shift. Now, at the same time, nor are they a magic wand. And we've got to steer clear of this kind of 60s panacea idea. They're not a magic wand. They're not going to help everyone. They're not going to radically change everyone overnight. But they're just a useful tool alongside the other parts we have in psychiatry that deserve this spotlight of research. Um Whilst we're obviously talking about psychedelics, th th I think anyone with, with any degree of nuance is coming around to that either academically or even you know experientially to say, well, these are you know these are incredibly powerful tools. Maybe the most the the, the prepotent ones in, in our armamentarium of treatment. Mm -hmm. They're certainly not the entire show. What other things do you think should be taught, you know, as an adjunct to the at the psychiatrist level besides? Wow. Again, this isn't even about psychedelics. Good psychiatry is about holistic mental health care. Yeah. It's, it, we, we talk about this biopsychosocial model. Mm -hmm. No amount of any drug, whether it's Prozac or LSD, is going to cure a patient, nor is any amount of CBT. It's a biopsychological social framework. Mm -hmm. We... Mental disorders are caused by multiple dimensional problems. Mm -hmm. They're not caused by just a chemical or just a 
poor parenting problem or just a trauma event or just poverty or racism or exclusion. It's all of these things impacting together. So similarly, the treatments have to be multimodal. And this is really, really important. So, you know, your question, what other modalities? To even without psychedelics, all these other things. Um, you know, as a child psychiatrist, I take a very developmental approach, unsurprisingly, um, and often come back to attachment disorder and those early pre-verbal um, years of informative psychological processing and psychological development. Um, and I think that the social things are really important. And it's so easy to take our eye off the ball with those. Mm-hmm. I often say, you know, we could empty half of the prisons and half of the hospitals tomorrow by having good care for single parents with children under five. Because mm-hmm. if we can get that early attachment relationship right, that is, well, it's the strongest effect size in all of psychiatry. Mm-hmm. A disordered, maladaptive, early years experience has a, the highest rate of uh, damage in terms of adult mental disorder. We know all that. Um, you know, my, if I hadn't done medicine, my number two choice was social work. I think, you know, that we, the social aspects of psychiatry need to be pushed. Um, and we need to do them all because the psychedelics are not a magic wand. It's, they're really just the early springboard experience. Mm-hmm. The unpackaging of the psychedelic experience and the psychological and social inputs and the integration take weeks, months, years, mm-hmm. and they need to be there. Um, there's no magic wands in psychiatry, not even with psychedelics. So I think this notion of you know, where having a sensibility for what the primary etiological factors are Mm-hmm. It's really at the guts of this you know, mm-hmm. paradigm shift from palliative to curative. If you, if you don't know what the cause is, then you're forever destined to be a symptomatologist of sorts. Um, so yeah. I think it would be useful, and you've alluded to it there, but to really drill down on your experience of, you know, as a child and adolescent um, psychiatrist and how that sort of cohort basically aged into mm-hmm. your work with, with, with alcoholism. And I think that would be nice we jump to get at what I believe to be the primary ideological factor for a lot of this is, is trauma. Mm-hmm. So I think how, how are, okay, so let's say someone's, you know, picking up what you're putting down. They're, they're getting that there's, you know, a sensibility for that there's this, you know, thing at the root. Those of us who have experienced it sort of have a visceral appreciation for how the accessible, inaccessible becomes accessible, but I'd like to get it or clinicians, therapists, I view of what that looks like in the room. So yeah. trauma for whatever you know source it was, developmentally you know, mm-hmm. oriented, that has had all of these you know adult manifestations. Like, how does MDMA actually get at that yeah. you know root cause? Yeah, I'll answer that. But I want to just go back to the concept of categorical diagnoses and trauma at the root. Um, the whole system of psychiatry in the last 50, 60 years has been built upon single indications, um, classical categorical diagnoses, depression, anxiety, PTSD, addictions, eating disorders, personality disorders. What psychedelics are really doing is they're shining a spotlight on that and they're broadening it. Because like you quite rightly say, trauma is the common etiological root of all of these. And I'm increasingly moving away from DSM and ICD and these categorical systems because my clinical experience over these the last 25, 30 years has been it doesn't really matter what diagnosis you get. If you hurt or humiliate or abuse or maltreat a child, they will get something. Mm-hmm. 
They may get an eating disorder, they may get depression, they may get anxiety, they may become a heroin addict, an alcoholic, PTSD, personality disorder. It doesn't really matter. Those are all red herrings. They're going to get something because the fundamental core building blocks of their psyche, what is love, what is trust, what is a brother, what is a sister, is it okay to lie, cheat, steal, is it okay to hit, is violence justified? These things you learn when you are that high and you do not lose those. We keep those core fundamental parts and it's going to become manifested in some psychiatric indication. And the whole system of categorical, categorical diagnosing and this, this compound for treating that is red herrings. We're missing the wood for the trees because you're quite right. Trauma underpins them. Now, what psychedelics and particularly MDMA are showing us that they are transdiagnostic. And we have seen in the last 15, 20 years a certain pigeonholing of MDMAs for this, psilocybins for that, ketamines for that. I think what we're going to see 5, 10, 15 years from now when all these drugs are available is not only are the drugs going to be used across the board, we're going to do away with diagnosis. And I mean, this is a very personal theory that we're even going to call psychiatry a different thing. I think 15, this might not come true, but if it does, remember I said it. Um, it's on camera, it's just me and you talking. I here. think what we're going to have is we're going to have two different forms. We're going to have what's very clearly biological psychiatry, which is essentially neurology, yeah. where things like um, certain aspects of like severe chronic schizophrenia, bipolar one, uh, maybe some aspects of addiction, certainly ADHD, epilepsy, Tourette's, these neurodevelopmental disorders are going to be neurological hardwired disorders. And then everything else is going to be called trauma-based disorders. And that's where depression, PTSD, most addictions, anxiety and stuff is going to sit. Mm -hmm. Because it's artificial to separate them. Yeah. Um, and so, coming back to your question, MDMA, MDMA is just this fantastic piece of technology mm -hmm. that allows you to go to those repressed, avoidant, forbidden memories of your pain mm -hmm. in a way that you can't normally do in trauma-focused psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. So it gives you and your therapist this precious window of opportunity for a few precious privileged hours mm -hmm. to go there and essentially just do the trauma-focused psychotherapy that that other 50% can do without. Yeah. So it's, it's not that magical in a way. It just it moves you from that treatment-resistant group into a treatment-respondent group. It's, it's, it's an incredibly powerful adjunct to what is ostensibly primarily trauma-focused therapy yeah. to, to begin yeah. with. Um, yeah, and I think the point about that is, you know, psych I mean, psychologists in the audience may disagree with me here, but again, I think psychological models are all pretty much the same. It's yeah. basically sit down with someone you trust and talk about your pain. Mm -hmm. And that's great for 50% of people. You talk about your trauma, your assault, your, your rape, your negative experience, your childhood, and you, through talking about it, you lower your levels of uh, arousal and resistance, and you overcome it. That's great, but... You know, for so many people, by the time they're in their 30s, 40s, 50s, yeah. they've become expert avoiders. They will do anything but talk about that thing that happened to me. And MDMA, they can talk about it, and it allows them to just do the trauma-focused work. I think what bears almost like adding on to that is there will be people watching or listening who are thinking, well, uh, I've, I've, I've told the same story mm -hmm. over and over again to, you know, X number of, of psychotherapists of every stripe, and, you know, and I've done every other, you know, modality under the sun. Yeah. I think it bears repeating that there's a way for people to talk about their trauma, but they're, you know, they're sitting on their trauma. They're not sitting with their yeah. trauma. So it's not that it's, oh, well, it's like you're just not able to voice it and the MDMA mm. magically makes you know your, your, yeah. your larynx yeah. open up. There's, there's a distinction between a visceral appreciation and a processing of the emotions, which is being verbalized versus one which is just, you know, 
you're repeating the same old no. story, but in a dissociated Absolutely. State. No, you're absolutely right. It is that experiential aspect of it that makes it different. Um, and we see this just in, in all psychotherapy, the difference between an intellectual understanding and an emotional understanding. You know, people can move to the position of, I know it's not my fault, I was only six years old, how can it be my fault? I was a victim of uh, awful exploitation. And intellectually, they know that. But emotionally, they, their brain keeps bouncing back to this hangover childlike child brain, whereby they're in some benign situation like a queue at the post office, and they have a huge panic attack mm -hmm. because their brain is telling them that they're in that five-year-old state where they're being assaulted, mm -hmm. and they're not. So they, on an intellectual level, know this. And you're quite right. They can sit through hours and hours of CBT or psychotherapy. They write a book on it a lot of the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so intellectually, they know it's not true, but they can't not get out of that hangover that their brain goes to. And, you know, with MDMA, we know it's at the level of the amygdala and this, this hyperarousal at the uh, situation. But, yeah, what the MDMA does is it gives you an experiential experience of a different brain state, which they've not had before, and that's what makes it unique. I'll share an anecdote with you. Um, I had a patient on MDMA in an alcoholism study, and she was lying there. Uh, and she was like very loved up and oh this is so beautiful and this is so lovely she turned to me and she said Ben is this what love feels like and I thought about it I thought well you know this is a transient drug-induced experience this isn't the noble beautiful feeling of love of course it's not and then I thought well hang on right she's safe yeah. she's contained she's yeah. warm she's empathic yeah. she's trusting yeah. and I went yeah actually this is what love feels like mm -hmm. and she went oh my god this is amazing she said I've never had this my entire life since I was born all I've known is fear and pain and exploitation and fright and now I know what it feels like and the next day I talked to her and I said, you know, were you just high? Was it just gobbledygook? Do you even remember? And she said, no, that I can still remember what it felt like. And now as I go forward, I know that I'm capable of this. Mm -hmm. And this is the really important point, Nile. It's like I said to her, that drug didn't create that feeling. That drug unmasked something that you have and have always had that was beaten out of you. And you have that capacity to regain that mental state again without this drug. And so it's, you're quite right, that it's more than just another level of intellectual understanding because these people are therapized out. Yes. It's, it's an experiential brain state that's incredibly valuable. Um, and you know, it goes back to this issue of neuroplasticity and uh, neuroflexibility mm -hmm. and how we use the psychotherapy in that very privileged few hours to make lasting lifestyle change. That's the real cue. It's, that's, that's the challenge. It's the psychotherapy. The drug's the easy bit. Yeah, and this notion that someone can be there for long enough for it to be lucid, to be in a transpersonal situation, yeah. which I think is, is incredibly important, and for it to be hours, not minutes. Mm -hmm. You know, It's not transient in that sense. They can have full conversations. They can unpack trauma. Mm. But they can also just have this visceral experience of what it is to be loved. And I think I, I repeat these lyrics pretty much every podcast, but there's a song by a band who I'm sure you'll be familiar with called James. Do you remember James had that song, Sit Down? And there's a I lyric. Mean, it was so uncool to listen to that when it was big for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, I'm not very, we've established I'm not cool. Um, but it's, if I hadn't seen such riches, I could live with being poor. And those moments of people having that breakthrough experience mm. all at once, a gestalt appreciation of what love is, is what every decent therapist wants to have so that they can then incentivize, mm. you know, they can incentivize 
their client mm. to do the necessaries for however long mm. it takes to behaviourally and cognitively instantiate that and say, there's a there there, as Sam Harris puts it, there's a there there. So I think a lot of, mm. I think we're going to see, and we're already seeing this renaissance in, in lots of other different non-ordinary states for that very reason, because it mm. allows people to reaccess that. I think mm. there's a lot of interesting And work. it's safe and non-toxic, and that's what's yeah. important. You get that with a, with a bag of heroin, and you get that <laughs> yeah. with a bottle of vodka. Yeah, yeah. You know, these, yeah. these drugs um, dampen amygdala effect. Yeah. Ba- a bottle of vodka, a bag of heroin turns off the amygdala. Mm. It, it, it puts you into a position of loving openness and acceptance and empathy for a few hours, but not anything like in the way MDMA does, because MDMA does it so cleanly. Pharmacologically, it's unique in that way. And the other faculties are intact. So, you know, heroin, vodka, great, you'll feel euphoric for a few hours, Mm -hmm. but you can't work on those compounds. With MDMA, it so cleanly turns off the amygdala with leaving the other faculties intact. You can do psychotherapy, you can reflect, you can remember, you can recall memories. And crucially, even when it wears off the next day, you remember it. Mm-hmm. You've done the work. So basically, it, it, it just gives you these Still retrograde hours. amnesia. You're just, you're, you it can remember it. Amnesia. It, it, it just turns, very selectively turns off that amygdala, but you can still function psychologically. Mm-hmm. And that's quite unique pharmacologically. Firstly, absolutely, you can't talk about any medical intervention without talking about safety. Um, there, there, I mean, not even medical intervention, there's nothing that's 100% safe, whether it's like... That's not 100% safe. Water, water lions, yeah. knives, cars, love, all these mm-hmm. things kill loads of people. Um, so so nothing is 100% safe. Now, we don't use blunt words like safe or dangerous in medicine. We talk about risk-benefit analysis, mm-hmm. okay? The question is, is this intervention at this time um, appropriate in this patient Mm -hmm. and do the benefits outweigh the risks? Now, you do that analysis in your head with every medical intervention from sticking plasters to cancer chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, sticking plasters, what are the benefits? Well, they stop the flow of venous blood and they keep the wound clean for it to heal. That's great. What are the risks? It hurts when you pull it off. Cancer chemotherapy, what are the benefits? It can destroy the cancer cells and save your life. What are the risks? Well, it could actually destroy all of your healthy immune system and kill you as well. So you weigh it up. So you put MDMA through that risk-benefit analysis. What are the risks? Well, it can raise your blood pressure and temperature and heart rate transiently for a few hours, and then they come back down to normal. And in 20 years of research and over 2,000 clinical cases, there hasn't been a single adverse physiological event. There's one of the risks. Um, well, I think that's about it, actually. There's, there's no, the, these, MDMA has no addiction potential. Uh, I was 12 years in addiction services, not a single patient. Yeah, yeah, these, yeah. MDMA is not on the radar as a public health concern. Um, even very heavy recreational ecstasy use, whatever ecstasy is, I'm not sure what that is, but um, it's just not there as a high-profile risk issue. But we need to talk about it, and it needs to be there, and we need to monitor physiological state um, and demonstrate that it's, that it's safe and it's not changing. One of the things about recreational drugs, Niall, is we learn pretty quickly within epidemiology of recreational use when there is a dangerous drug on the street, when something, a new kid comes on the block. Mephedrone, MCAT, classic example, synthetic cathinone. Fentanyl now in yeah, synthetic I mean, additions I, I, for I, I, heroin. With, me, with like Mephedrone, MCAT, you know, 2006, seven when it came out. Within about six months, we saw wards and clinics yeah. and addiction centers full of mephedrone problems. Mm-hmm. Now, we've had MDMA for 35 years, 35 years of heavy ecstasy use within the UK, 750,000 doses, three quarters of a million doses of ecstasy every weekend for 35 years, yet the rates of morbidity and mortality are staggeringly low. 
Now, ED consultants would be beating down the doors of Westminster or Canberra we if, would if, know, if there was epidemiological we evidence. We would know by yeah. now if MDMA or ecstasy was a public health concern that is causing significant mortality and morbidity. And you're quite right, that epidemic of depression and dementia that we were told was going to happen in the early 90s just hasn't happened. Um, now, that does not mean it's 100% safe because we don't use that term. It just means from an epidemiological point of view, it is, it's a pretty harmless drug. It just is. It's just a data-driven statement. Um, now, what we do know is that the few deaths a year that are attributed to ecstasy well, firstly, the majority, when you do toxicity studies, are not ecstasy. It's yeah. just not MDMA. Um, or there's concomitant drug use, particularly opiates, benzos, alcohol. Um, but the few that do, do look as though they could be idiosyncratic ecstasy or MDMA attributable are because of drug prohibition. Yeah. Um, I've said this many times before. Drugs don't kill people. Prohibition does. Mm -hmm. We can reduce to virtually zero the harms of MDMA or recreational ecstasy use by having an open regulated market where you can have safe education and safe use. Most people take most drugs most of the time benignly without any harms. Yeah. And that's true even of crack cocaine and methamphetamine. Mm -hmm. I think there's this public perception that Every time someone uses heroin or methamphetamine or crack cocaine, they die. Of course they don't. You know, mm -hmm. We'd have queues around the blocks at treatment centres. Now, the people who come to addiction centres are people with trauma. And most people can take these drugs all the time. Now, the danger is that the two or three or four or five people who do die from MDMA every year, you can bet your life they will be on the front cover of the tabloids, leaving this public perception that this is somehow a dangerous drug. It simply isn't. And that's in the non-clinical non setting. When you then look at the medical setting with screened patients, monitored, physiologically monitored, doctors, nurses, therapists there, uh, follow-ups, you know, this is an incredibly safe drug. Yeah, so from that sort of therapeutic profile, I, I think it's important to like almost belabor that point because, like I said, there is... I think people were allowed to sort of labour under their misinterpretations as medical or allied health professionals, but as of the 1st of July in this country, I don't think that that mm. type of ignorance is really you know, clinically it, it, acceptable anymore. It's not. Yeah. It's not. And, you know, I can almost understand it from the general public who have fallen for the last 50 years of, mm. I mean, I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but essentially lies mm. from successive governments about the safety or risk profiles of recreational drugs. Um, and I can forgive if the general public, I cannot forgive health professionals for those opinions because it is unforgivable. Yeah. I will share another anecdote with you. I was doing a talk at uh, the Royal College of Psychiatrists in London about 12, 15 years ago on LSD. And I wasn't on LSD. <laughs> that um, was a good talk. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of and, snakes. And I was talking about LSD psychotherapy. <laughs> And at the end, some guy put his hand up and he was like a, a, a ER doctor, experienced a, a, a professional ER doctor. And he said, Dr. Cesar, I cannot believe you are talking about LSD as if it's safe. This is a dangerous, dangerous, terrible drug. And I said, oh, OK, tell me more. Give me some data. He said, I had a patient came into my casualty department a couple of weeks ago. He'd taken 17 tabs of LSD and he was doing naked somersaults in the waiting room. And I was like... Okay, then what else? Did he need to be admitted? And they, he, went, he said, no. His friends came, they took him home, and I said, did he require psychiatric follow-up? And they said, yeah, the crisis team called him, and he was fine. And I said, right, so you've just given me the example. You've told me that this is dangerous, awful killer drug, and the example you've given me of someone who's taken 17 times the recommended dose, his only pathology is naked somersaults. <laughs> and I said, what if he'd had 17 grams of cocaine or 17 bottles of wine? Mm -hmm. He would be dead, yeah. and you know it. 
yet, and this is an experienced health professional, so I can forgive the general public who've read the tabloids for the last 50 years. I cannot forgive high-level experienced medical professionals or others in the healthcare system or politicians for this, for this negative stigma. It's outrageous. I have never really found any strong correlation between wisdom and intelligence. If anything, high intelligence can sort of act that capacious intellect and help you make a success, you know, post-hoc rationalization mm. against the truth. Um, so I think just in terms of, you know, we've covered a fair bit of that, I suppose, you know, recreating it. The, the notion that I like is we've covered a lot of that, but the notion that recreational use doesn't just get to be thrown under the bus because uh, I'm, I'm blanking on the person's name, but that notion of recreating, I think that really is at the core of it. Um, to add personally, I will never know the denominator on this, and it's sort of unfalsifiable, but from listening, I've worked in rehabs for a fair bit, and a podcast which I'm very much enjoying called The Two Norries, which is about two reformed drug addicts, they will often talk about MDMA as almost like this period where they used it recreationally, but with hindsight and all the psychotherapeutic work they've now realized is it was their way to, to, to sort of basically surrogate some love mm. to then explore these deeper childhood traumas or attachment wounds, which they then were able to work through in different ways. So I, I, think, I think it's very important that we don't throw recreational use under the bus just in way of being expedient to just make everything legitimate, you know, uh, mm. tomorrow. Because um, when people are self-medicating, we as professionals must look at ourselves and say, why are they doing that? Nature mm. abhors a vacuum and the, it's incumbent upon us to sort of find yeah, no, I mean, the answer to that. I think this is a, a quite a well, well-worn discussion within psychedelics. I, I don't think that psychedelics should be restricted only to a clinical population. Mm-hmm. I think that there is space within the the future for us to have both clinical uses and also personal growth and development within retreats for positive well-being and communal cohesion and bringing people and families and couples together who don't otherwise have clinical problems. Mm -hmm. Um, They are, from a legal and uh, policy point of view, very different conversations to be had. Um, Having a drug legalised as a medicine, as which is what the TGA are doing here in Australia, which is superb, is very different from having you know dispensaries where healthy people can go and get cannabis or or psychedelics or whatever, or go to retreats. Um, They are very different from a legal perspective in terms of the framework that needs to exist. But um, they're not going anywhere, you know. And there's quite a lot of kickback from the psychedelic community these days about. Um, medicalization and corporatization and I have to keep reminding people look there will always be mushrooms in Wales okay just because doctors in white coats with clipboards are going to be able to prescribe it to patients doesn't mean they're not going to be raves and parties and festivals and you know mushrooms and ecstasy tablets they're not going anywhere that's that's ridiculous to think that what we're doing is and we're increasing accessibility. And some of the dissenting voices in the psychedelic community is, you know, you're going to medicalize it, it's going to become exclusive. That's ridiculous. It's the current situation that's highly exclusive. Mm-hmm. If you're prepared to break the law or, you're pre- or you've got the money to fly off down to Peru and have an ayahuasca experience, that's incredibly exclusive. Mm-hmm. What we're doing by making it medical is that we're not going to shut down recreational use. Um, another good, a good analogy would be, say, gay culture. The idea of, you know, do you remember the good old days when it was illegal? And it's like, you know, <laughs> people were being beaten up by the police. It's like, of course, when, when, when homosexuality was legalised, yeah. um, gay culture flourished. Yeah. So I don't share these fears that somehow by um, medicalising and making these medically accessible, we're going to lose the magic of psychedelic culture. Non-clinical use is here to stay. Yeah. All we're doing is adding to that 
mm. clinical use for those people who need to access access it. There's a line, and you know, I, I'm I'm sort of like any podcaster, a bit of a boundary walker in this. So I've sort of heard from a lot of different people uh, their take on it. And there's a line from the movie Dosed Two, where some uh, entrepreneur, you know, startup guy in, in the psilocybin space says makes a good point, where he says, "Listen." Single mums are not going to go out, you know, foraging in some nice part of the world. And I think working with, you know, socioeconomically deprived family systems at times, I think there is a privilege to things not being made, you know, broadly accessible through through democratized models of, of one sort or another. So I yeah. think, you know, there's there's obviously huge discussions to have about what that looks like, where the rubber meets the road. Mm. But as long as there's space, I think, for this, you know, full gambit. But the whole psychedelic experience is so wholly incommensurate with, you know tight, monopolized taxonomies anyway. So I mm. sort of share your optimism that I think, yeah, I mean, they'll, I think they'll be very widespread. The real challenge in the future, I mean, we don't need to do any more research, you know? We know they're safe and efficacious, it's ridiculous. The real challenge for the future is democratizing psychedelics, bringing these into free public health care, yeah. um, using them alongside other holistic psychiatric and mental health care measures. Mm. Um, we know they work, we know they're safe. Um, we gotta keep doing the research and you know, the TGA process is very, very rigid and so it should be and it's highly supervised and scrutinized and that's good because we, we've got the light of the world looking at Australia with this, we gotta get it right. Um, but from a marketing or investment point of view, these are a nightmare, you know? These are the worst drugs, you only have to take them two or three times and you're better. Now again, I don't think it's a conspiracy theory that this biological psychiatry situation has arisen. That's giving far too much credence to the, yeah. to the intelligence of the pharma industry. Yeah. It's, it's an apathetic position that yeah. we've painted ourselves into. Yeah. I don't genuinely, maybe I'm naive, I don't think they sit there at you know, Lily and Welcome and, and sit there going, what drug can we come up with next? It doesn't quite get the patient better, but they have to take every day. I think you know, the pharma industry is full of wonderfully intelligent, erudite people who really want the best for patients. They've just allowed it to happen over 40 years. So I don't know, I don't know the answer, I don't know how we market psychedelics. Um, I can understand why investors are uh, very anxious, because where's their return? Um, but I do know that the epidemic of mental health is so huge, it's, there must be some way to creatively find a market to make this work for the benefit of these millions of people who are suffering. Yeah. And what we've seen in the last three years is this you know, huge bubble that's then burst and share prices have dropped and all the investors have run off because um, they've suddenly realized, well, we can't make any money because these things aren't patented. So they're doing crazy things like chasing patents and IP on new molecules that they'll never make. You know, this is, I think all the people who fear IP and patents, half this stuff will, half, 99% of this stuff will never get to prescription pads. Mm -hmm. It's just a way of bringing investors in. We need to find a way to turn this into free public health care. Um, and we need to do that for the betterment of patients. And somebody smart will come up with something. That is a multi-generational project. I think society grows great when we plant seeds under whose shade we know we'll never sit. So I think that plays mm. to this like anything else. So sort of to shift now towards, because I think we've, this I think is a very interesting quote. I'm going to read this out and then get your thoughts on it. And some background as to who this chap is. If I'm going to be the best possible psychotherapist using this modality to help people, I got to understand where they're going and where they're coming back from. This is Sarko Gagarian, who at the time I think was probably one of the only you know, active police officers who was also a MAPS trainee and he featured on the Netflix documentary, which you were also in. Mm. But I think now that we've broken this critical mass of research in the modern psychiatric or psychedelic renaissance, we've now well surpassed what was happening in the 50s and 60s. The focus is inevitably going to shift to, okay, 
the bottleneck is going to be the people who are there to provide it. So I suppose that brings me on to the question where we, there might be some daylight between us is, should the ingestion of MDMA be a part of regulated training pathways for therapists? What say you, hmm. Ben? Firstly, I know Sarko. We had dinner yep. in Reykjavik not so long ago. Um, uh, it's a very small community. <laughs> <psychedelic> <laughs> and if you go around the world doing conferences, you meet everyone. Yep. Um, so should psychedelic experience be essential? Now, my, my feeling on this is it's highly desirable. It's the icing on the cake, but it's not essential. Mm -hmm. Now, this is only, I only say that in an imperfect world where it's very hard to get regulatory approval to do this. Yeah. Of course, we should be striving for this, but it's not as important as being a good clinician. Okay, this is my feeling. I get a lot of people who contact me. Oh, Ben, I want to be a psychedelic therapist. Why? Oh, because I love taking LSD. It's like, that is not the reason. You should want to be a psychedelic therapist because you love working with depression, PTSD, because you spent five, ten years working in hospitals, outpatient wards, police stations, school, school playgrounds with traumatized patients and you're an excellent clinician and an excellent therapist and you know how to work with dissociative states and risk factors. You understand the concepts of consent and confidentiality and safeguarding issues. You work under the auspices of a regulatory body where your work is supervised and scrutinized. You are an excellent clinician who now wants to add psychedelic therapy as a specialist bolt-on on top of your brilliant clinical skills. That's the answer. Now, if you can also have psychedelic experience, great, let's strive for that. Let's see if we can get this past ethics committees to give psychedelics to our therapists. But it is not a substitute for being a great clinician. No, no. So I'm sort of half answering your question. Yeah, yeah. Of course I, would, I think it's great, yeah, but right. it does not trump being a great clinician. No, I, I don't necessarily think those two things are, are mutually exclusive. Now, because lots of people do. Yeah, a lot yeah. of people within the underground community are yeah. like, I don't need a piece of paper, man. Yeah, yeah. Plant spirits taught me everything. You know, yeah. you, if we're going to move this forward, sure. we need to move this forward with scrutiny and supervision from regulated bodies. It's all it's going to fail. Okay. And I'd also, to, I'd see your proposition, I'll raise you this. Let's say there was a chap sat here, and I'm like, this is Bill. He's the world's leading therapy on non-armed human combat. He's a seminal scholar. He knows everything there is to know about that, but he's never been in a fist fight. Hmm. There's some core sensibility to violence mm -hmm. that he does not have. So my feeling is that I wouldn't, now I, I don't, I'm agnostic about this, but I probably tilt more towards thinking you can't, if it lies, the, the phenomenological experience of psychedelics is so mm. outside of whatever the training protocols mm. might be. Hmm. that I feel like if you don't have a phenomenological sensibility for what your clients are going through, then the quality and the nuance of the decisions that you might make, especially if it's top hmm. down, are going to suffer in, in the round. Hmm. I would say data, please. Okay. Before you make a statement like that. Then I, okay, uh, yeah, fair enough. And, uh, and I think another that's way not, it, it, it is falsifiable, so we could, have to, yeah. we, could have, we could run that study. We could say, here are all the therapists who haven't, they don't, they've, they've never had the phenomenological, they just haven't had a psychedelic experience. Mm. They're totally psychedelically naive. They've got all the same credentials, one standardized for credentials, we've got this bunch over here. Mm. And then, you know, we've got a thousand people who've got intractable addictions or all, you know, our hardcore patients that just weren't getting better over there and over there. And everybody has to bet their mortgage on their mm. house about which, you know, mm. horse they're gonna bet on. Uh, it's, it's, yeah. it's an interesting point, right? So my co-therapist that I've worked with for 10, 12 years, she's brilliant, and she's mm -hmm. a wonderful trauma therapist. She's only recently taken MDMA. Yeah. And it's made no difference to her practice whatsoever. Yeah. 
Mm -hmm. you know, she was a brilliant trauma therapist and has been for decades. Mm -hmm. She's just recently taken it. She's not changed. And, yeah, and, and she is the person I want in a room with me yeah, if, yeah, I, if I have a severe trauma-based mm -hmm. disorder. I don't care if she's had MDMA or not. Mm -hmm. It's a bit like if you... If you go into your GP with uh, with hypertension, mm -hmm. you you don't want the GP to come back at you with, oh, this is a really great hypertensive because I tried it, you know, or my wife, it works really well okay, for my wife. I'll, I'll, what you want uh, is the GP to say, this is a great hypertensive because it's been tested on 50,000 people. Here's all the papers. Now, <laughs> I'm going to push on. I'm going to give you another example. <laughs> you're about to go in for your, you know, you've got, you know, you're riddled with cancer, you've got metastasis all over the place. World's best surgeon. She comes in. You're absolutely shitting yourself. She's like, you're gonna come back from this, sweetheart. So did I. Makes no difference to the skill in her hands. But I, I, my point being is that there is a, if we, we know the central mechanism of action of the, the psychotherapeutic component of the psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, which is a diet, you know, it's the yin and the yang. That central mechanism of action, regardless of modality, mm. is therapeutic rapport. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If, a schizophrenic, in a moment of lucidity, looks over at the person and says, I've had a conversation with this guy, and he understands what delusions are, you know, because he's had LSD or whatever the case may be. There is a visceral solidarity that when the, the floor empties out of a room, when the trauma comes into the room in those settings, and I do believe that there will be noticeable and testable differences which will extrapolate out over time between mm. the therapists who have had this and those who don't. I would not set foot on the face of a mountain with a mountaineer, he would never set foot on the face of the mountain. I mm. wouldn't take mm. swimming instruction from a swimming mm. coach who'd never got his head mm. wet. But these are and I question why though. examples. Okay, because yeah. they That's have set foot enough. on the mountain because they've done years and years of working with trauma. They've very much been on the mountain. They may not have been wearing the same colour anorak that you think they ought to form yeah, but yeah. you know right. so it's that it's not that they have no skills in this no, area I'm not but saying anyway, they look, don't. let me say something it's really important Mike, no because i know what these kinds of situations are like when it comes to people replaying them i don't want it out there that ben sessa thinks psychotherapists no, shouldn't yeah. take something no, no, I know that's you absurd don't. Yeah. of course they should yeah. it's the ideal position the position i'm trying to say is it's not as important as excellent clinical skills it shouldn't disqualify um, people it's, from it's the cherry yeah. on the cake yeah, yeah. ideally we should be striving for it and the reason we're not yeah. is not because protocols don't want it it's because yeah, yeah. ethics approval won't it can't be got it's hard enough getting ethical approval to give it to patients to then mm -hmm. say oh by the way we want all our clinicians to take it they're like crazy so but why are they crazy then because if we said the, the safety profile that. yeah ethics but reverse engineering the the, the the what the ethics want making that superordinate mm. scientific process well it's borne out you know so maps achieved it with the mt1 study mm -hmm. for the first cohort of trainers they haven't been able to do it for the last eight ten years um yeah. Uh, and Compass didn't achieve it for their trainees. Mm -hmm. um, we do it with ketamine because it's, ketamine is much easier, but um, we were using all kinds of creative things like breath work and stuff instead. Mm -hmm. Of course, psychedelic therapists and trainers want this. It's yeah, just yeah. hard to achieve. Yeah, yeah. I, I want this too. But the point I keep laboring is what we don't want is a position where people think psychedelic experience alone sets oh, yeah, you yeah, up yeah, to deal yeah. with complex trauma because it just doesn't. Oh, in yeah. fact, it's almost the opposite. And we have a bias in either direction. Yeah, what yeah. you don't want is a therapist sitting in front of you going, this is right because it worked for me. That's mm -hmm, terrible mm -hmm. psychotherapy. That happens uh, a lot in addictions where someone yeah. who's... No, and, and so that reminds me, when yeah. you've got multi, one of the beauties of multidisciplinary teams in mm. addictions is you can have people with different skill sets. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I might be, as a doctor, sitting there prescribing methadone for someone. I've not been a heroin addict. Mm -hmm. And so I can't give them personal experience 
experience of being mm. a heroin addict. But within the team, there'll be volunteers and workers who were recovered. Experts by lived experience, yeah. So you draw in all members of the team. Mm. I don't think everyone has to have experienced everything. This mm. is what multidisciplinary teams are about. It's mm. surrounding yourself with skill sets. Mm. Ideally, we would have all tried these things, but it's not essential. Okay, yeah, I, I'm still agnostic about it, and I think there's it'll it'll truthful bear out over time. But like you say, I think we sort of have to leave that up to the science, as often does, has to catch up with you know the state of nature. Um, so, oops, we're finished there. But I um, think we've got a few minutes. But I am keen to just sort of explore a little bit about what what I call. I ask a lot of my questions. Let me guess this question: the realistic magic wand question, which makes people then say, "I don't really think you understand the concept of a magic wand, Nile." <laughs> But it's more for me to say, okay, you've got a fairly benign government, you know, three to five years down the track, you can research or do whatever you want. Let's keep it, you know, because this is what we're speaking about within the sort of Australian context. Not where do you think psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, and more specifically MDMA-assisted psychotherapy is going. Where would you like to see it go in the yeah. next three to five years? Um. Well, actually, firstly, let's just say something about this TGA decision, because it is groundbreaking. This is mm -hmm. amazing. Um, all these years, all these decades, we've been looking to MAPS to get FDA approval. We've been looking to Compass Pathways to get psilocybin over the line. And left field, out of nowhere, Australia walk in at the last minute, and suddenly it's a medicine on July the 1st, leapfrogging all the years of research. It's incredible. I, mean, I still can't quite believe it, and I wonder how it happened. But it did, and it's mm -hmm. happening, and we've got to not mess it up, and we've got to make sure it's good. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of weird infighting and politics in Australia, which I do not get at all. Mm. It's absurd. All these people I've known for decades in psychedelic research in Australia are suddenly unhappy with the decision. And it's too fast, and we shouldn't have done it, and it shouldn't be this group, it shouldn't be that group. What, what are you talking about? Mm. We've all been trying to get this goal. The rest of the world don't care about these other factions. They think we're all mad, yeah? Um, and mm. they're looking at Australia now, and we cannot screw this up. Mm -hmm. with infighting between different groups who, yeah. for some reason, everyone should get behind this TGA decision and make it work. I don't, I'm not aware of any group who's trying to monopolize this at all. Mm -hmm. Nowhere on the TGA paperwork anywhere does it name a particular group. It's all just about good scrutiny and supervision and training for all of the therapists and the doctors. Mm -hmm. So get behind it and do it. Where are we, where are we gonna be? Where do I want it to be? Well, I want us to successfully see MDMA for PTSD mm -hmm. um, with a large end number of real world data that demonstrates safety and efficacy with 1,000, 10,000 patients. I wanna see us then broadening MDMA and psilocybin and ketamine and DMT and 5-MeO mm -hmm. DMT and LSD across a broader range of psychiatric diagnoses yeah, yeah. because these are non-specific adjuncts to psychotherapy. They shouldn't be condition specific. Mm -hmm. In fact, the condition specific situation and pigeonholing of the last 15 years is just an anecdote of um, limited it's research. It's yeah. an artifact of, yeah. of, of, of uh, limited research. Yeah. And when we've done them all, all the studies in everything, like when does the penny drop? Every month a new study comes like, oh, apparently ketamine works for anorexia. Oh, apparently, uh, you know, LSD works for anxiety. Apparently MDMA works for alcoholism. It's like, uh -uh. obviously they all work for everything. Um, <laughs> And as I said, it's challenging our whole concept of categorical diagnoses. And I think that's where we're going to be in the future. Yeah. I think 5, 10, 15 years from now, you'll be able to go into the psychedelic clinic with any diagnosis, mm -hmm. and you're going to have a whole smorgasbord of compounds, and patients are going to make their own uh, patient-driven formulaic 
um, protocols are based around the compounds that they tolerate. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be MDMA for this or psilocybin for that. It's going to be, right, the first few weeks we're going to try you on a dose of MDMA, next month we'll try TCB, next month we'll try ketamine, see which one you like, see which one works for you, build your own, um, have ownership over your care plan, move mm -hmm. forward in that way. They're all safe, they're all efficacious. Um, and it's, but this is going to be a paradigm shift for biological psychiatry and ego-driven um, medical care that doesn't like to see it this way. But mm -hmm. patients are doing this for themselves now. Mm. This is patient power. They are doing had, it right now, you know, stuff like this. Yeah. People are trying to upregulate their psychological They're sitting on sub, substandard CBT and SSRIs yeah. for the last 50 years. They, they want more. They want yoga, they want Pilates, they want better diets, they want vegetarianism, they want meditation. Throw all of these things in. Let the patient build the protocol. Mm -hmm. And what, what gets you out of bed in the morning when it comes to psychedelics? and what keeps you awake at night? Oh, uh, what, what gets me out of bed is uh, the many opportunities I have to travel around the world and do this. Um, I, love, I, I love bringing this to my generation of psychiatrists, and, but above all, it's the patients. It's, it's the patient stories of I've, ha I've tried everything and this really helped for me. I, I shy away from the eureka sort of life-changing yeah. things because that magic one thing doesn't usually happen, doesn't work, and it's also probably a false message if it does. It's hard work. This is a springboard. It's a platform for lifestyle change. It's not a magic one. What keeps me awake is uh, the the frustrating interface between politics and science. You know, other doctors don't have to deal with this. You know, <laughs> yeah. you, don't get, yeah. you don't get the Royal College of Surgeons or physicians saying, you know, we've, we've discovered this new drug for, you know, kidneys or hearts or yeah. bones. And the government saying, mm, okay, thank you for your expert advice, but we don't like it. We're going to do this anyway. Yeah. It just doesn't happen. It's, it's offensive. That's a, it's, that's a Republican hip replacement that you've it, got. It, it, it's on, offensive you know, as a scientist yeah, yeah, and a doctor yeah. to be yeah. told by a politician that this evidence-based practice, they don't like it. Yeah. You know, we see this in the UK all the time with terrible drug policy, which is politically driven on a, what is a science health issue. You don't see it in other parts of medicine. That frustrates the hell out of me because I see that as an impediment to my worthy patients who deserve this. You don't need to tell someone from Northern Ireland that where tribalism, you know, and, and, and excess takes places, mm. it's, it's nowhere good. So I think the notion that we can all learn from each other, nobody has, you know, all the answers to this, um, certainly. And this is going to be an you know, evolving, and I think, multi-generational adventure. Um, there's always going to be a lag time, even with things moving as quickly as they are in Australia. Mm. Um, so, you know, uh, people will be watching as unconscious that, you know, people in the audience, of course, have picked up on what you've said, but I'm sure you get contacted through your different, you know, the hats that you wear, as I do through the podcast, from people who are desperate and are waiting for this to come. So mm -hmm. from a sort of, what would you say to people who are watching more specifically, who are hoping against hope that this comes through and, and optimizes in, in mm. Australia? What, what would you say to those people? It's very hard because... I'm, I'm, I'm an idealist and an eternal optimist, mm -hmm. but also I'm a realist in this respect. Mm -hmm. You know, in the mid-60s, um, the medical cannabis community were absolutely convinced that cannabis would be available everywhere within two years. Mm -hmm. They then followed 40 years of the most draconian drug policy all over the world. And I, so I think sometimes the generational thing 
you can't pin your hopes on that. Mm -hmm. A lot of people say that, oh, but you know, once all these kids who've been raving and taken mushrooms, and when, once they grow up and become like, you know, politicians, then it'll change. Mm -hmm. It didn't happen that way in no, the 60s no. at all. Mm -hmm. uh, people get, old, get more conservative as they get older. Mm -hmm. So we can't rely on that. We just have to rely on this chipping away with data, data, data. But it's not just science and data. Medical cannabis is a great example. Myself and Professor Nutt, we spent 15 years putting piles of data onto the desk of each successive Home Secretary for medical <laughs> cannabis. Every year, no, no, no. And then one day, four kids with epilepsy get on the front cover of the sun. Within two weeks, medical cannabis mm -hmm. is available. So this is the point. Yeah. It's not just science and data. We yeah. need to attack this with all aspects of cultural change. Mm -hmm. We need soap operas and fiction and films mm -hmm. and celebrities, people coming out it's, and, and talking about their psychedelic use, not in a sensationalized way, yeah. not in either, you know, it's dangerous and killed me or my family, yeah. nor it changed my life and I gave up my job in the city and moved to a yurt in Totnes, you know? <laughs> it's something in the middle. I am a teacher. I am a, yeah. I am a, a state agent. Yeah, 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 take ayahuasca every now and then. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. You know, just normal, boring, conservative, everyday psychedelic use. That's what people are doing. Yeah. So we've got to keep pushing with the science and the data and the politics, but we also need someone who's smarter than I am about understanding cultural change. Mm -hmm. I think the stuff that you're doing, mm -hmm. we've got to touch hearts and minds mm -hmm. with cultural change because this is going to get this over the line. Data moves the needle, but stories change the heart. So I think, nice. thank you so much for sharing your story and being with us. Just welcome to Perth. And yeah, it was a pleasure and hope this is to be continued to. Big round of applause and thank thanks you. for being here. Thank you. very much for listening hope you enjoyed that conversation a big thanks to ben for being gracious with his time and also for emeria for hosting and steve for his video expertise in a new addition to the podcast we are now going to be hosting video podcasts and this event was recorded in front of a live invite only audience and in some exciting news we are hoping to shift the podcast to be more of a live panel format as Australia moves rapidly into a phase where the timeline is greatly expedited and psychedelics are going to become a part of not just our medical landscape, but I think also the broader cultural landscape. And as Ben rightly points out, I think at the tail end of that conversation, we need more spaces for conversations because, as I said, data moves the needle, but stories are what really move hearts and minds. So we need to have convert conversations, nuanced discussions, uh, you know, avenues and, and forums in which we can all agree, disagree, and then break bread afterwards. So what we're hoping to do with the podcast going forward is create, as I said, more of these sort of live panel discussions. They're, they're more fun. I think it's easier to disagree in person than it is online. And as I said, also in the podcast, nobody has all the answers to this. So I think it's really important that we create spaces where everyone from completely different walks of life, from completely different experiences, um, takes on psychedelics, is able to be together with each other and share information. And I don't really think that social media is <laughs> the best format for that, especially in this new age of this move towards AI. 
I think that what we're going to start to see is a slide towards conversations which are lowest common denominators. And we've had the outrage phase. It now feels like we're sliding into the basification phase. Everything is the same. Every town you go to looks the same. Every conversation starts to be the same. And I believe that podcasts are deeply important from a psychoeducational perspective. But really what is more persuasive, what is more important, and what is more, I think, to, to my take on things is to be with each other in person. Um, we need to relentlessly humanize each other. We need to make our spaces more 3D. Um, 2D is great and everything, but we are we don't have bodies. We are bodies. So more and more with this podcast, I really want it to become a platform for in-person events that are also recorded. Uh, so if you or anyone that you know would be interested in hosting an event, I, I would be super keen to talk to you. Um, yeah, we're hoping to do more heartfelt, heart-led conversations that still have a bit of a psychedelic science component, but shift more into really the experiential component of psychedelics because that's really where the magic happens, in my opinion. So yeah, if you or anyone you know might be interested in linking up and potentially providing a venue, we can have a chat. Uh, This is definitely where the puck is moving. And yeah, I just really enjoyed this event and would like to do a lot more. So please get in touch through the website. And as always, all of the information and things that we mention in the podcast are available on the website at mindmanifestpodcast.com. And the show notes are chock-a-block full of links if you want to deep dive into some of the stuff that me and Ben talked about. We have a few very exciting guests coming up. A conversation about some brilliant new research looking at the centrality of music into the psychedelic experience and how there are really noticeable changes in brain states which have been observed uh, through neuroimaging technology after psychedelic um, uh, events. And yeah, that's with Matt Wall, who is a, a neuroscientist and works with Invicro and was also involved in the Imperial Studies and just a really nice guy. And then we have some conversations about hypnosis and a few other exciting conversations in the pipeline, which I will reveal sort of closer to the time. So, yeah, until next time, take care and knowledge to marry. Bye.